0: We're going we're gonna to change this platform here real quick, so just bear with us. We're going to set this platform up. I've been walking around too much, so they're going to box me in this morning so I can't really move a whole lot. We're going to recreate the first last supper, the first last supper, Lord's communion. And as we're setting this up, let me just say to piggyback on what Derek said a few moments ago last week, Stop Hunger Now, I tell you what, uh, we were talking to the guy, his name is Dominic, that heads that whole thing up. And uh, we were talking, well, what are our issues going to be? What are our problems going to be in this whole thing, pulling this off? And Derek and I both said the same thing. Our problem is going to be we're not going to be able to get the people from Grace Community Church to leave. Like at the end of the 930s, they're going to want to stay and want to do more. And sure enough, that was, that was the case. Just always above and beyond, it's a complete honor and privilege to be a part of a community like this. And so thank you so much for all that you did uh, last week to make that just a absolutely incredible time and yes, we will do it again But because we're uptight get it right Antonians, we will make some changes next time that make it even better, right? You know what I'm saying? So some of you picked up on what those things would be so we're gonna we're gonna make some changes to make it even better All right, so here we go We're gonna flash up a very famous picture on the screen who can tell me what it is after you silence your cell phone do you silence your cell phone? Who, who, whose picture is that? Yes, please. Da Vinci. All right. All right. Da Vinci, painting of the Last Supper. Da Vinci was a genius. Uh, by all accounts, the man was a genius, not in just the area of painting, but in a wide array of things. Uh, some people say he was the smartest person on earth. Uh, a wide array of topics that there has ever been. He's as is, is smart as it comes. However, he did make one mistake. This is historically inaccurate. Uh, the Last Supper, when first time Jesus served communion, it would not have looked anything like that at a straight table like that with all them sitting uh, on those chairs. It wouldn't look anything like that. They would have been in a U-shape, and I know it's hard to see, but just okay they would have been a U-shaped table the table actually would have been a little bit I almost I almost got him he's a Dallas Cowboys fan I've been after him for years you see how the Lord shows up at church you see that all of you Cowboys fans, beware. <laughs> what were we talking about? The tables would have been lower. They would not have sat in chairs, so just work with me. There would be, there'd be pillows, okay? And they would have leaned on their left elbow, and their feet would have been away from the table, right? Because why? The feet stunk really badly. So feet would have been away from the table, and you would lean back. The table would be behind if I'm there, and I would take bread, okay, and I would dip it into a bowl and I would eat. And it, so their feet, they'd be facing away all the way, does that make sense? We'll make more sense of it later. So uh, anyway, that's the way it would have been. These guys are going to help me recreate something uh, here this morning, but the first uh, thing they're going to do is they're going to read to us the scripture. We have four of them they're going to read. We're going to start in verse number 22 from Mark chapter 14 and read through uh, 51. So take it away, men.
1: While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, "Take, say.
2: take it. This is my body."
1: Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they drank all. They all drank from it.
2: This is the cup which is poured out for you and men. Truly, I tell you, not drink. Not <coughs> I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new. In the kingdom of God.
1: When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives.
2: You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee.
1: Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not.
2: Truly I tell you, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times.
1: Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled.
2: My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch.
1: Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed, that if possible, the hour might pass from him.
2: Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will.
1: Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping.
2: Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak.
1: With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear.
2: Am I leading a rebellion, that you have come out out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled.
1: Then every one of them deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind.
0: What a privilege it must have been for these 12 guys to be at the First Communion. Not served by the Pope, not served by a pastor, and not served by a priest, but served by Jesus Christ himself. Now, is that a privilege or what? Maybe some of you have been to a church and it's been said Hey, not everybody here is worthy to receive communion. You can't take communion today. Only certain people can take communion. Or maybe you've heard a sermon about that. Okay, think about this. These guys here got to take the very first communion from Jesus. Is that a privilege or what? Would you have liked to have been there that night for that honor and that privilege that these guys were deemed by the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, to be worthy of receiving communion. It is absolutely fascinating to me. Now, did you catch the alls, A-L-L? See how many alls there were in that? It says that they all, verse 23, they all drank. And then Jesus says, in verse 27, he says, you are all going to fall away. And then Peter speaks up, In verse number 31, and he says, no way. And then all of them say, no way. They all vow. There's no way we're all going to fall away. And then what happens at the end? Verse number 50. We're told that they all, A-L-L, all deserted Jesus Christ. What's with the deal with the all? Well, first of all, we know they all did it. But the other thing that it's trying to emphasize there is, Given the same set of circumstances that these guys were in, given the exact same set of circumstances, all of us would have done the exact same thing. All of us would have done the exact same thing. We would have all fallen away. I want to talk about something very specific this morning, and that is is how do we know that God loves us? Sometimes I hear people say, yeah, I believe in a God of love, and I want to say to them, why? Why do you believe in a God of love? Like, do, is there proof for that? Is there proof? Because I think many times people say, I believe in a God of love. It's just a feeling. They want to believe in a God of love. Why do you? Do you have any logical reason to believe in a God of love? What proof can you point to other than just, oh, that's what I want to believe? I choose to believe in a God of love. Are there, are there proofs to this? And what I'd like to do is go through this text of Mark 14, because I've seen something this past week. I've heard the story a million times, like many of you have. But God's kind of shaken me with something this past week that I was like, I had never quite saw it that way before. In the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 13, the definition of love. It's like reading from a dictionary, 1 Corinthians. It says love is just like any time you go to dictionary.com, right? you want to define a word. And it tells us this, says love's not a feeling. So if you say, well, I just want to believe in a God of love, well, that's not a good way to go about having an understanding of God of love. Instead, it says that love is a decision followed by an action. So what are the decisions that Jesus Christ made in this story, followed by his action, that gives us proof positive that he loves us? This is what we're going to go after this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. for your word uh, that gives us insight and for this story, uh, which is uh, very moving, very, very moving. Uh, Help us as we look at this familiar story this morning to see what you want us to see. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to give you three proofs. First proof is this. How do you know that Jesus Christ loves you? loves you because Jesus was separated for you. He was abandoned. We're, I heard this. A doctor, a psychologist actually say this one time. says, people, human beings, suffer from three core fears. All of our fears come from three major core areas. Abandonment, rejection, humiliation. And Jesus Christ deals with all of them in this story. Abandonment, rejection, humiliation. He is abandoned by his disciples. But what is worse than that, what's worse than that, he is abandoned by his father. He's abandoned. He cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I mean, we think about the pain of the nails in his hands and the beating that Jesus Christ went through, and we're like, Oh, my goodness, this is terrible. Jesus must have been in such pain from that. But you have to understand from the story that it's not the physical pain that he's going through that is causing him to suffer. He does not cry out from the cross, Oh, my gosh, these nails are killing me. He doesn't say that, does he? Interesting. He says, I am hurting so desperately, Father, because you have left me. In my hour of need, you have left me. And Jesus Christ did that for us. He put himself in a situation where the Father abandoned him. You ever been left by somebody that you love? Some of us have been abandoned by our parents. Our parents left us. Some of us have been abandoned by a good uh, friend family member, whatever. When somebody like that who is close to you abandons you, that wound will stick with you the rest of your life. And Jesus Christ was abandoned by his Father for you and for me because he had to to show his love for us. He had to do it for us. He was abandoned by his Father. And this is where the pain comes in and why he cries out, on the cross, why have you left me? Mark 14, 33. It says this, that Jesus began to be deeply distressed. You wonder, everybody, when did all the sin and the abandonment get laid on Jesus Christ? Was that when he was on the cross? Was that at the final moment, right before he died? Right? Are you tracking with me? When exactly did Jesus Christ become our substitute? When... When, when, when did the, the sin and all, when did it get laid on him? When did the father walk away from When did that happen? We have a, a very important clue. That it started actually in the garden. Many hours before the crucifixion. Where it says in Mark 14.33 that Jesus Christ began, began to be deeply distressed. Those words are important, deeply distressed. You know what it means? It means that Jesus Christ was astonished, shocked. Alarmed. Why is that important? Because Jesus is never shocked and alarmed by anything. Nothing surprises Jesus. He always knows what's going on. He's always in control. There's a storm. Boop. Let's calm it. There's 5,000 people who are hungry. Okay, not a problem. Got it covered. Right? He needs to find a place to have the Passover. Right? He needs to find a place. So he tells Peter and John, Go into the city to Jerusalem filled with people. Hundreds of thousands of people would come from all over the world to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. Biggest day in the Jewish year. Places packed with people. Go into the city. You're going to see a man carrying a water jar. Why is that significant? Men don't carry water jars. I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm just relating information. Don't get mad at me. Women carry water jars. This man is carrying a water jar. Follow this man to a house. Go to the house and say, hey, I need a place to have the Passover. He's in total control. He's calling all the shots. And all of a sudden, after an entire life of calling all the shots and being completely in control of every situation, he's shocked. He's astonished. He's alarmed. He's falling on the ground, everybody. And he's saying, Father, and the father's not answering, Father, can you get me out of this? That's disturbing. Why does Jesus die so badly? He dies very poorly. We have many accounts of other people who were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ who died much better. I read one just the other day. Two guys died for their faith back in England many years ago. And right before they were burned at the stake for their faith, they said, we are going to light a flame for Jesus Christ. Bring the torches on and fire us up. And here you got Jesus shaking, falling on the ground, shocked and astonished and dying very badly. And let me tell you something. In the Middle Eastern culture, this does not go over very well. Everybody. We like it in America. We're like, okay, that makes Jesus relatable they don't like it over there. It's repul- If you're trying to make a case for Jesus Christ being God, you just shot your ca- case down. And this is what he does. Why? Because he's facing something no other person has ever faced or will ever face. For you and for me, his father turned his back and left him in his hour of need. And would not even respond to him, abandoned, left by his very be- best friend, his father, for you, and for me, as a proof positive of his love for us. Isaiah 59:2 says, "Our sin separates us from God." Well, check this out. 2 Corinthians 5:21 tells us that Jesus Christ became sin. Notice that the words. He did not become a sinner. He didn't become charged with certain sins. He became 100% pure, personified sin. And that repulses the Father. A holy God cannot stand sin. He's repulsed and walks away from Jesus Christ, his son. And he does that for you and for me. Second proof. Because Jesus was struck for you. Do you see where Jesus said in Mark 14, 27? The guys just read it. Ivan was reading Jesus' part. He says, quoting from Zechariah 13, I will strike the shepherd. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep are going to be scattered. All of them scattered. They all left. Who is the I? Who's the eye? Who's, who's doing the striking for Zechariah? The Father. God, the Father, strikes Who? Jesus, he strikes Jesus, the shepherd. What does the word strike mean in its context? What is the definition in the Hebrew of the word strike? It means to attack. It means to kill. It means to destroy. Are you getting the picture now? What Jesus Christ went through? He's like voluntarily, nobody's forcing me to do this, but because I love you, Because I love you, I am going to allow myself to become sin, be abandoned by the Father, and then as a result of that, to be attacked and killed by my Father. Because I love you. And there's no other way. That's love. That's radical, radical love. You might say, uh, why so violent? Why is the Father so violent? Have Have you ever... Uh, heard of something that absolutely sickens you, sickens you it 's so disgusting, it 's so vile, it actually brings a physical reaction inside of you. just ah, sickened by it. I remember a number of years ago there was a story about a young girl that had been discovered after many years, like she was kidnapped, taken when she was very young, like nine or ten years old, taken off the street somewhere in her neighborhood. And this sick, perverted man had taken her, put her in his backyard, kept her there like she was some filthy animal, repeatedly raped her. We're talking for like 15 or 20 years. She wasn't discovered until I think she was in her 20s. She had children through this sick guy. 15 or... When I heard about that, that so sickened me. That so repulsed me. I mean, the first thought that ran through my head, oh, man, please, somebody grab a gun and blow his head off. Just being honest with you, it sickened me that much. It's disgusting. Now, Isaiah, look what it says. Isaiah 53, speaking about Jesus Christ. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And here it comes, ready? And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity, the sin of all of us. Now it made sense to me. The depths and the radical nature of the love of Christ began to open up for me this past week. It hurt me, it humbled me, and it shook me all at the same time. Every sin, every sin, every sin that's ever been committed, every rape, every murder, every lie, every wicked, vile act, every disgusting, repulsive thing concentrated itself from past, present to future, concentrated itself at one moment, one time, on one person, Jesus Christ. And he, in the eyes of the Father, became the perpetrator of every disgusting and vile act that has ever been known to humankind. He became the perpetrator of all that wickedness. And the Father looked at him as the perpetrator of all those vile acts, and he reacted. He attacked him. And he killed him he did that for us. Any good parent knows. You mess with a child, you mess with a parent's child, it's going to bring a violent reaction. And the father looked and he said, Jesus Christ is responsible for all the wickedness and pain in this world. He has become sin and he attacks him and kills him. He did that for you and I. He didn't have to, but he had to because he loves us. He made a decision and he acted upon it. Last proof. Because Jesus was shamed. He was shamed for you. He was abandoned. He was rejected by the Father because the Father was repulsed by Jesus Christ. And finally, he was shamed. Being shamed is a terrible thing. Some of you have been maligned at some point. I've been maligned at different points in my life. It's a very, very hurtful thing. I can remember a period of time in my life when I was maligned for something. And in the beginning, I tried to defend myself. And, you know, people would, I would see people and they would turn their heads. People would shake their heads. People would turn their noses up and just sneer at me. Like, you don't know the story. And the shame became so painful, so deep, that eventually I had no strength to even defend myself anymore. We're told that Jesus Christ went silent like a lamb before the shears. The shame was so powerful and so deep. When you die, all you have is your name. In the Middle East, even more so when you die, all you have is your name. Crucifixion wasn't designed just to kill a person physically. It was designed to shame a person. You were stripped naked. You were spat upon. You were mocked. And you were shamed. And your entire family, from the shame you went through, more than likely would never, ever recover from that shame. That's how deep it was. Philippians 2.7 tells us that Jesus Christ was of no reputation. He lost all of his reputation. He was shamed. He knew he was going to go through that. He decided to go through that for you and for me. Abandoned, repulsed, and shamed for us. Now, I want you to think about this in conclusion. Sometimes we think to ourselves, you know what? We all make mistakes, don't we? We're all going to be completely honest. We're not perfect. And we all make mistakes. And maybe at times we think, you know what? At some point, maybe Jesus is going to say... I am just sick and tired of all these mistakes that you're making. My grace is running out for you. How could you keep failing? You just asked me yesterday to forgive you for this, and now you've come back here again and you're doing it again. Some of us have those thoughts. I would bet that all of us have those thoughts at some point. You know what? Eventually I'm going to run out of the grace of God. I want you to think about this. Here's the radical love. Here's the radical, radical love of Jesus Christ. Our salvation is not based on our commitment and our loyalty to him, is it? Our salvation is based on his commitment and loyalty to us. Jesus served all of these guys' communion by his hand. And every single one of them betrayed and denied. Even knowing Jesus Christ. Peter, when Peter denies Jesus Christ on the third denial, he won't even say Jesus' name. He says, I, and he's cursing, I don't even know the man. I don't even know him. Now think about this. Jesus Christ, knowing all that he's going to go through, right, knowing all that he's going to go through, he faces up to all of that and still loves, still serves communion, still invites them as friends to his table, knowing all of that, the rejection, the abandonment, and the shame. And he still is committed and loyal. Now you tell me this. What is it that you're going to do that's going to be worse than what he has already faced? You tell me what sin or failure you're ever going to do that's going to top every sin compiled together all at once. You tell me what you're going to do. If he's not going to turn his back on you, after all that he has faced, why would he ever turn his back on you? That's some radical love. That is deeply humbling. When somebody grips that, they don't go out and say, oh, I can do whatever I want now. No, when somebody truly understands that, their heart sinks. And they say, oh my God. I feel so unworthy for your great gift to me. The disciples deserted Jesus, failed Jesus, didn't even. You would go when your rabbi or your hero was killed and you would at least gather his body and give a proper burial. They didn't even do that. Cursed, abandoned, failed, betrayed, denied. And yet Jesus Christ washes their I want to show you real quick where the different players are, three, four, actually, of the players here on the table. Where would they be sitting? Uh, Back in 1997, I took a trip to Israel, and we went to a very famous historical um, research uh, area there, actually, just outside the walls of Jerusalem. And I learned something I never saw before about that Lord's Supper. They took us through this exact same thing, except we had the whole meal And they told us where everybody would be sitting. Well, not everybody. They told us where four main players would be sitting at the final meal. And they said, at this configuration, Leonardo da Vinci had Jesus right in the middle. And that is not true. That's not historically accurate. Jesus would not, as the host sat right here. Jesus would have sat right here where Ivan is. This is where Jesus is. This is where the host of the meal. And he would have arranged, the host would have arranged where everybody would sit at the meal. Jesus would call the shots right here. Where is John, the beloved disciple who wrote the Gospel of John? Where would he be sitting? We're told from Scriptures that he leaned back against Jesus and he said, hey Jesus, who? which one is it that betrayed you? And Jesus' right hand man would have sat right here where Hosea is. And from there, and I know I can't get the guys to do this, but their feet would have been away from the table. Hosea would be leaning here on his left arm. Jesus would have been facing Hosea's back and it only makes sense than that Hosea would lean back, John would have leaned back against Jesus and said, tell me who it is. Where's Peter? We're told two things about Peter. The first thing we're told about Peter is that he makes a motion to John and says, find out who it is. Who's the betrayer? We're also told this, that Jesus Christ, when he washes the feet, it says, and when he comes to Peter, which gives you the idea that Peter was the last person to have his feet washed. So he would have been at the end of everything. He would have been at the lowest seat. Jesus said, I want you to sit in the lowest seat of all, the servant of the entire one. And where would he have been? He would have been right here, perfectly positioned because Jose's back would have been to John here, Peter. Everybody else would have been facing this way to Jesus Christ. And this one person here would have had a straight, clear, hidden shot to John over there and said, find out and this is the last person who would have had their feet washed and this is the person who should have washed everybody's feet but refused to wash everybody's feet and so when Jesus comes to Peter sitting right here he says to him what? Peter says to Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet and Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet and Peter says, well then wash all of me Jesus says, I just need to wash your feet Peter's sitting right here now we have one last player Judas Where is the betrayer who we're told is filled with Satan? Where is he sitting on that night? Where does he sit? There's a seat of honor given by the host. Jesus Christ is the host of this dinner. There's a seat of honor here in this configuration. And it is right here. And this is where Judas sits. Because we're told that Jesus says to John, he says, I am going to take bread and I'm going to dip it in a cup. And it's the person who dips bread in the bowl with me. That is my betrayer. And this configuration, the way they would eat back then is they put a bowl here between the three of them. The three, Jesus, John, and Judas, would have been eating out of the same bowl. There'd be another bowl here, here, and here. And Jesus Christ, through radical love, honors honors Judas, his betrayer, filled with Satan, and puts him in the seat of honor right there. If that isn't radical love, I don't know what is 1 Corinthians 11 says that we should not receive communion in an unworthy manner. I began to think about it this past week, and I began to think about the disciples. And I'm thinking about who can and cannot take communion. Who, who's it right to go receive communion from the hand of a priest or a pope or a pastor? And I thought, oh my gosh, this is communion at the hand of Jesus Christ, God Almighty. God Almighty. And he serves it to a group of people who are radically unworthy to receive it. And then it hit me. The only people who are unworthy to receive communion are people who think they are worthy to receive communion. We're not having communion today. We'll have it next week. The only people who are unworthy to receive communion are people who think that they are worthy to receive communion. One last stab at religion versus gospel. Religion says, only the worthy can receive. Gospel, in a complete change-up, says, only the unworthy can receive. And That's why it is so radically different, humbling, and we see the radical love of Jesus Christ in the midst of this. Now, I want to conclude by saying this. I have this bread, we're told that Jesus Christ took the bread and he broke it, bread of all things, and he offers it to his disciples. And he says these words, he says, take and eat it, all of you, consume it. You know what's so bizarre about that? Is that Jesus has used bread all throughout the book of Mark and we're told that they never understood about the bread. He feeds 5,000 people and they're like, what is up with the bread? They're like, we don't get it. He feeds four thousand people. Same thing. What is the deal with the bread? What, there, there's confusion all of us, and so with confusion about the bread, on this all important night, he whips out the bread again. Again, why? Why the bread? It's so common. Who likes bread? Anybody here like me like bread? Oh my gosh! I know we shouldn't eat it, but man, it's so good, right? Just so good, warm bread. Butter, right? It's fantastic. (laughs) Let me tell you something about bread. Bread can be, you know, that warm, it can smell, it can sit there on the table, it can just, ah, I just want to get my hands on it. You could be sitting before the most delicious and nutritious meal that has ever been cooked in all of humankind and if you do not take it and receive it and eat it that food will do zero benefit for you is that not right if you never eat again will you die of course you will in order for us to benefit from food we have to take it and eat it and receive it now this story of the radical love of Jesus Christ it's inspiring it's moving even people who like, I don't know about the Bible, even people like that when they hear something like this about Jesus being abandoned for us, being rejected for us, being shamed for us, have to say, wow, that is amazing. There is not another story like it. Nowhere. God suffering and dying for us. There's not another story like it. But it's as cool as it is, is as amazing as it is, it does us zero benefit. Unless we take it and we receive it. Some of you have not received it. This is the most important decision of your life. Will you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior? You have to receive it. You can't just hear about it or know about it. You have to act upon it and receive it in order to be benefited by it. I want to encourage you to think about that this morning. I want to ask the music team to come out. All of my wonderful guys here who sat here this whole time are going to quietly exit off the side. And the music team has a very special song that they want to sing for you this morning. They're going to sing that song and we're gonna, we're gonna pray. Um, Can you help me thank my guys who helped us this morning? Let me say this as they're preparing to sing their final song. Our prayer team is right along this wall. We're very serious. Is there anything we can pray with you about? Please let us know. Most importantly, if you have not made this all-important decision to receive Christ as your Savior, it is the most critical decision of your life. If you'd like somebody to pray with you, we'll be over there. If you'd like me to pray with you, I'm, I will be here. Don't just walk away from the table and say, well, that's nice. Because there's more to it than that. There's something here for all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord. For your radical love you didn't have to but you did you did did jesus and it amazes me that you allowed yourself to have all the sins that have ever been committed and will ever be committed to be laid upon you so that you became repulsive to the father for us that kind of radical love is unbelievable that you would do this How could we respond to this, Lord? How can we respond? Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.